Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to Mark's Gospel. Our reading tonight comes from the end of Mark 15 over into chapter 16. You'll find it on page 853 of the Pew Bibles, page 853. We're going to read about how Jesus was buried, and then about how Jesus rose again from the dead. So Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 42, and we're reading down to chapter 16, verse 8. Page 8, 5, 3 of the Pew Bibles, and this is God's word to us. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was led. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they led him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, You'll find our passage tonight on page 853 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning to those verses, uh, let's pray briefly together. Father, we thank you for the man of sorrows, the Lord Jesus, the one who has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about himself, the one who has borne our sins and our sorrows, made them his very own, also that we might be saved and rescued. And we pray that tonight as we look at the the apex of the story of the resurrection of your son, we pray that you would encourage us and help us to see it in a fresh light. We also pray that you would come by your spirit and challenge those who, who don't yet trust in Jesus, that they might see the, the truthfulness of this account but also the change that it can make in their lives. Father, we pray that you bless our time in your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, tonight we're finishing this short Easter series. We've been tracking our way through Mark's gospel, and we've been thinking about the three days that changed the world. At the beginning of this short series, I pointed out that Easter stands awkwardly as one of the three main holiday seasons. Easter is the holiday that people, ordinary people who aren't Christians, have the most difficulty explaining. So Christmas, we all kind of get Christmas. Summer holidays, we all kind of get that. But Easter, lots of folk aren't really sure. And that's becoming more and more the case in a more secular society. Uh, That slightly obscure thought was well expressed in an article in a leading national newspaper over the weekend. Uh, The Daily Telegraph ran an article entitled, Easter is about Christianity, not dinosaurs or cavapoos. Now, I didn't know what a cavapoo was, so I had to look it up. It's a type of dog, strange type of dog, but it's a type of dog. Anyway, the article was very good and expressed in ways that I couldn't and didn't the sense that people don't understand what Easter is all about. Let me read you part of it. The the writer said this. This is the holiest time of year for Christians when both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ are commemorated. Once, shops would have been closed at 3 p.m. today. Uh, The article was published on Good Friday. The time when Jesus is said to have died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two. That ritual is long gone, and now it seems people can't make up their minds whether to mark Easter or not. The signs are that Easter is not just being forgotten, though, but willfully dumped. It is now almost entirely a spring festival with a nod to chocoholics. Mainline supermarkets are offering egg hunt baskets this year with no mention of Easter. Easter eggs, eggs being symbols of the resurrection, have been replaced with chocolate rockets, cavapoo-type chocolate dogs and dinosaurs. Shops which previously had images of daffodils, Easter bunnies and Easter eggs in their windows now have dinosaurs and their eggs. Now we're living in changed times. Christianity is no longer the dominant religion in the United Kingdom. The last census proved that to us. There's been rapid social change in the past decade. And in addition to that, there's now a generation of young people and adults who could not explain the basic message of the Christian faith, which means that Easter stands awkwardly as one of the three main holiday seasons. Is Easter really just a spring festival with no particular meaning or purpose? Is it just the time when the clocks change, the evenings brighten, and our gardens begin to turn green again? Or is there more to it? Well, we know the answer, or hopefully we know the answer. Easter for us as Christian believers is the most significant time of year. As Presbyterians, we don't follow the church calendar as closely as other denominations do. We believe that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday we meet because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But there is a sense in which Easter weekend itself stands out in the church year. We may acknowledge and talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus every Sunday, but this weekend stands out in a special way. It stands out because this is the weekend that changed the world. Now, where are we in in terms of studying or looking at this most important weekend? Well, this is sermon four of four. Jesus went on trial. He was wrongly convicted. He was mercilessly beaten. He was brutally crucified and he really died. We've been using Mark as our guide to the three days that changed the world. He tells us of Jesus' death in a simple yet profoundly definite way. In Mark 15, 37, Mark writes, And Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. So there it is, tried, convicted, beaten, crucified, died. That's where we've got to in the story. As we finished last week, though, we said that there's more to come. Normally, when someone dies, that's the end of the story, the end of their story, but not Jesus. And that's what we're going to cover tonight. We're going to cover two main events spanning three days. Jesus' burial on Good Friday and his resurrection on the first Easter Sunday. As has been the case with these Easter sermons, our points this evening will be straightforward and quite loose. And towards the end, we'll wrap the series up with some heart application. So this is three days that changed the world. Part four then, Mark 1542 to 16.8. Here's the first of two main things that we need to see in the passage before us. Jesus really was buried in a tomb. Jesus really was buried in a tomb. Let, let, let's read verses 42 and 43 again together. It says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. As the shadows of evening approach following Jesus' death on the cross, a man called Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for permission to bury his body. Now, Joseph isn't mentioned until this point in the story, but all four Gospels together paint a brief yet vivid portrait of him. Joseph was a rich man, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and a secret disciple of Jesus. While he was a high-standing member of the Jewish community, he hadn't consented to the ruling council's decision. He had voted against Jesus being condemned to death. Joseph was a good and righteous man who was actively looking for the kingdom of God. He was interested in spiritual things. His request to bury Jesus required a lot of courage because he was making his sympathy for Jesus public at a time when sympathy for Jesus could be dangerous. It's worth pointing out that Mark highlights this in his account. When Mark includes something not in the other Gospels, we should really take notice of it. The other, gospel, uh, the, the, the other, gospel, the other Gospels use Mark as something of a, of a template or a guide because his Gospel was the first to be written. The, the, the notable detail or phrase that Mark includes while recalling the story of Joseph of Arimathea is that he says he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage. Jo Joseph summoned up all his might. He swallowed all his personal, professional, and religious pride, and he stepped out in faith to honor the man he called Lord. We shouldn't miss this, and it's worth stopping on for just a moment. Mark has told us about Peter's denial of Jesus but he also tells us about Joseph's affirmation of Jesus. And just like Joseph, we're called to swallow our personal, professional, even religious or familial pride to honor the man we call Lord or to honor the man who has saved us. Back to Joseph's request, Pilate grants it, but is surprised that Jesus is already dead. You see that in verse 44. Pilate calls on the centurion, presumably the same centurion who had previously expressed faith in Jesus, to confirm that Jesus is dead and, and he does. Now normally it took much longer to die on a cross, but upon hearing that Jesus is dead, Pilate grants Joseph's request to bury the body. 
it was important for Joseph to bury Jesus' body quickly. Deuteronomy 21:23 commanded that a corpse be buried on the day of death. Time is tight because the Jewish Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday evening. And Mark gives us some, gives us some intimate details in verse 46. He tells us Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, in other words, taking Jesus down off the cross, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and led him in a tomb that he had cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Those of us who have experienced the sad reality of death can so easily understand this scene. The king of the universe is dead. He's covered in a linen shroud and he's laid in a tomb. Joseph Joseph buries Jesus in a rock-cut tomb that belonged to him. He gives Jesus his tomb, just as Jesus has given his life for Joseph. So now Joseph gives something back to his Lord. Uh, Rock-cut tombs were generally very expensive and they required a lot of work and a lot of labor. They belonged to wealthy families and the tomb was probably within Joseph's family. It was probably a family tomb. He finishes the hasty burial by rolling a stone against the entrance. Archaeological evidence confirms that circular stones were occasionally used to seal tombs during this time period. Square or rectangular stones were much more common though. The main purpose of the stone was to keep wild animals away from the body. It's important to note that the burial of Jesus in the tomb of a rich man confirms Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant. We've been singing about how Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the man of sorrows. This is what Isaiah said of the suffering servant. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And it comes true. Jesus is buried in the tomb of a rich man. Mark concludes his account of the burial of Jesus by telling us, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. It was a hasty burial. It was all very quick. And these ladies believed that Jesus' body was insufficiently prepared. So they pay careful attention to the location of the tomb because they intend to return after the Sabbath. Now, at one level, all all of this seems like a fairly mundane part of the story. Jesus is buried. So what? But it's a crucial part of the gospel and the salvation that is ours by grace. Jesus wasn't simply mocked or insulted, or wounded on our behalf. He really died, and he was really buried in a tomb. By mentioning the mundane details of the burial of Christ, Mark is highlighting the fact that Jesus really was one of us. We're told that Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, what is a corpse? A corpse is a dead body. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is a corpse. His divine nature is in union with a body that is now dead. His soul and spirit has departed and all that is left is the shell, the body, the corpse. Jesus really was buried in a tomb. Human experience consistently confirms the fact that death is final and irreversible. The burial of a loved one establishes in a way that nothing else does the reality and finality of death. It's undeniable that the person is gone and further engagement will not be possible. Nothing changes this. Nothing natural that is. But what of the supernatural? Well, that brings us to the second thing we see at the end of Mark's gospel. Jesus really was buried in a tomb 
And Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus really rose from the dead. Despite Jesus' predictions, his own disciples don't expect him to rise again. Death by crucifixion to them is is just too great an obstacle. It completely overturned all of their expectations about who the Messiah was. To the disciples' mind, there is no way, no way that God's true Messiah could die like that. If Matthew ended at chapter 27, if Luke ended at chapter 23, if John ended at chapter 19, and if Mark ended at chapter 15, the story would be over. Jesus would have just been another pretender who clashed with the Roman Empire and hit a brick wall. Each gospel includes another part of the story, though. Each gospel includes another chapter. John actually includes two. And the additional chapter changes everything. This story is not yet over and the world is about to be turned upside down. New creation is about to break into the midst of this old creation and nothing will ever be the same again. Let's read verses 1 to 8 of Mark 16. Here's how Mark tells the story of the resurrection. We're going to read these verses slowly, slower than we did earlier. And as we read read them, meditate upon them. Let them soak into your mind and heart. This is Mark's eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has not risen. He is not here. See the place where they led him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now there's nearly too much for us to cover in these verses, so I'm just going to pull on one strand of the story. It's a strand that helps us to realize that Jesus really rose from the dead. The notable thing from Mark's account of the resurrection is that women were the first eyewitnesses of it. That's very significant. In the time of Jesus and in the years immediately afterwards, the Jews gave little credibility to the testimony of women in, the law, in, in courts of law. They, they ranked the testimony of women with the testimony of slaves and criminals. They didn't think that women could be trustworthy witnesses. In light of this bias, it's striking that the New Testament record of the resurrection of Christ is heavily dependent on the testimony of women. It's a certainty that if someone wanted to falsify the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, the last thing they would have done would have been to put the reports of the resurrection on the lips of women. But Mark isn't interested in the law courts. He's interested in the truth and conveying exactly what happened. And so he reports the testimony of the women down to the detail of where the angel was standing. The the, the women who were there verify the fact that he, 
Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, has risen. He isn't in the tomb. Jesus was really buried in a tomb, but Jesus really rose from the dead. But what does it all mean? Having looked at the story, well, what can we take away on this Easter Sunday evening? What's, what's the heart application of all that we've thought about? Well, let me give you a few applications as we close. Here's the first, and it's connected to what we've just been saying about the women in Mark's gospel. The accounts of the three days that changed the world can be trusted. One of the main objections to the resurrection accounts in the New Testament is that people say they're contradictory. So if you read them side by side, if you read all the Gospels side by side, the stories are all different. Mark's is, Matthew's is different to Mark's. Mark's is different to Luke's. Luke's is different to John. Not, they, they, all, they don't line up. So, so many questions spring out of the differences. How many women were at the tomb? How many angels were there? To whom did Jesus appear and when? While the gospel narratives are different, they're not contradictory. They reflect exactly what we would expect from eyewitness accounts of such an unexpected and supernatural event. Their very differences confirm the truthfulness of the resurrection. Think of it in this way. If you were at church this morning, you will have heard and seen the male voice group from a certain position. The session room end, the center aisle, the Brashean end, from your position, you will have seen certain men. So if you were in the Brashean end, you won't necessarily have seen me, but if you were another person and you were sitting in the session room end, you probably would have seen me. You were sitting at different angles, but you were seeing and hearing the same thing. The gospel writers are writing from different angles. Their differences confirm the truthfulness of the resurrection. If the disciples had stolen the body and created a conspiracy to, to deceive the masses, they surely would have created more uniform accounts. They would have agreed a story and they would have stuck to it and they would have all said the same thing. They would have agreed in the story. And they definitely, definitely wouldn't have had women as their first eyewitnesses. The differences between the gospel accounts attest to multiple independent eyewitnesses each of whom communicated particular details from their individual angles. So the accounts of the three days that changed the world can be trusted. That's such a big barrier for people sometimes, not, not, not trusting what we have in the Bible. But there, is, there are answers to those kinds of questions. The, the, the second big hard application of this story is that death is not the end of the story for those who love Jesus. Death is not the end of the story for those who love Jesus. Easter Sunday is a day that is marked by hope. It's a hard day in a sense because it's a day when we talk about death and we all know people who have died. We've all, we, we all have loved ones who are no longer here, no longer with us. But death is not the end of the story for those who love Jesus. Jesus wasn't simply mocked or insulted or wounded on our behalf. He was killed. He actually died. Jesus underwent, underwent the death that is unavoidable for everyone, every one of us since the fall. And though each of us must pass through the awful experience of death, Jesus' own death and his subsequent re resurrection means that our death, while awful, is no longer a dead end. It's a new beginning. Death for the follower of Christ is an entrance ramp, not an exit. It's a really powerful way to think about it. 
Death for the follower of Christ is an entrance ramp, not an exit. It's as C.S. Lewis so beautifully puts it at the end of the Narnia stories. For those who trust in Jesus, death is the entrance ramp to chapter one of the great story, the story that no one on earth has read, the story that goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Easter Sunday reminds us of the hope of the gospel. Easter Sunday is a day on which we realize, I think, deep in our hearts, that the gospel actually works. Death is not the end of the story for those who love Jesus. Having trusted in Christ in this life, we'll meet him in eternity. And the same applies to our loved ones. And if they have trusted in Christ too, we'll worship and be with Jesus together with them forever. Which brings us to our final heart application. I think the final heart application has been the same every week in this series. It's been the same, but we've just put it in a different way each week. Here, here's the final heart application. The end of the story calls you to take your place in the story. The end of the story calls you to take your place in the story. Let, let's put that in simpler terms. The resurrection calls you to respond to Christ. Calls you to trust him. Calls you to believe in him. What's stopping you? What, 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 what barriers are in your way? During the week, I had to travel to the outskirts of Belfast and I was coming home around sunset. I started coming home by Ballyclare because it's quicker. Uh, the Corsa is nippier on those kinds of roads and the view is great, especially on a clear night. Uh, the night I was coming home was a clear, bright night. Uh, there were a few clouds, not, not many, and the sun was, was just dipping as I came to the top of the column. I was coming down the column and it was amazing. Green fields, houses, farms scattered all over the place. The best bit about that view is Slemish. Slemish looks great from the top of the column on a clear night. And as I was driving, I was trying to get a look at Slemish, but I couldn't. The windscreen pillars on my car blocked my view. Couldn't see past them. They were a barrier to me seeing and enjoying and experiencing the beauty of the view around me. What's stopping you from seeing and knowing and experiencing the love of God through Jesus Christ. Is it a pride thing? Do you know that didn't bother Joseph of Arimathea? He summoned up all his might. He swallowed all his personal, professional, and religious pride, and he stepped out in faith. Maybe you need to take the same step tonight. Joseph of Arimathea took courage. Maybe you need to take courage tonight and step out and trust in Christ for the first time. If you follow his example and turn to Christ, you'll be able to enjoy the joy and thrill of knowing Jesus. The end of the story calls you to take your place in the story. This is the end then of three days that changed the world. The amazing story of Jesus comes to an end in Mark 16 verse 8. Just a word on the rest of Mark. I don't preach it because I don't think it was part of Mark's original gospel. I think it was added on by a pious or concerned early Christian. There's nothing bad in it, but it just doesn't fit the rest of the gospel. The, the, the thing is, though, Jesus' final days weren't the end. They weren't the end of the story. While his sinless life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection accomplished our salvation, Jesus' work still continues. 
After he ascended to heaven and took his place at his father's side, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower the church's gospel witness to the ends of the earth. Even now, Jesus upholds the universe by his powerful word, intercedes for us with the Father, and is preparing a place in heaven for us. At one glorious future day, he will return to take us home with him. He will judge the unbelieving world and the devil and his demons, and we will live with him in God's presence forever. The question is, will you believe? Will you place your faith once and for all in the one who came and died and rose again so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life? If so, our Easter has dawned and God's morning star has risen in our hearts. For believers, Easter day, every day is Easter day and we can celebrate Easter joyfully, thanking God for his amazing salvation and looking forward expectantly to the day when our Lord and Saviour returns and summons us to spend eternity with him for his glory and our eternal happiness. Is Easter really just a spring festival with no meaning or purpose? Is it just the time when the clocks change, the evenings brighten, and our gardens begin to turn green again? Or is there more to it? Of course there is. It's the story of three days that change the world. Three days that can change your life if you would only turn to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the Easter story. We thank you for all that we've seen over these past few weeks. Our earnest prayer tonight is that we would all take our place in your story, the story of your great salvation, the salvation that you have won for us at the cross and secured by Jesus' resurrection. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it that we can trust, the sto- tr- trust and know that the story of Easter is true. We pray that your word would linger in our hearts at the beginning of another week, that you would fill us with resurrection hope and send us out as lights into a dark and broken world. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. We pray that they, for the first time, would take their place in your story and trust in Jesus. And we pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.